All right. So good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Zach, if I don't know you, and uh, I am one of the elders here at New City, and also get the privilege to take part in the teaching. Um, lately, it's on occasion. Uh, so I'm excited this morning to, to be here and to be with you and to be worshiping God, and we're going to look at uh, Jonah 3, the second half of Jonah 3 today. So if you want to turn there, uh, that would be great in a Bible or on an app. And I'm going to pray before I um, start talking, but just to warn you or to prepare you uh, this morning, uh, it's going to be very conversational, I'm uh, not conversational, dialogical, uh, which means more than one person is talking. And uh, so I would invite you, I wish I could just tell you to come sit in this like parted sea because uh, it's like, it's, there's something happened in the middle. Um, no one will sit there. Um, but uh, so if you want to squeeze in a little bit, that would be helpful, huddle together. Uh, but we're, I'm going to be asking some questions and inviting real responses, and we're going to be sharing back and forth. And I would like to remind you um, that this is and gets to be a safe place to share, and uh, we, will, we'll, we strive as a family to make sure that that's the case and that, that when we walk out of here, we're not walking out of here in order to to gossip about each other and that sort of thing. So feel free to open up and to share this morning as we get into it. Uh, I'm going to pray. God, I thank you for your leading. I thank you for your love for me. Thank you for your love for us, your people. God, I pray that you would lead and guide all of our hearts right now. And uh, we come in, many of us, on Sunday after a frantically paced week, not knowing which way is up, uh, let alone being able to remember whether we spent time with you, worshiping you this week. And so our hearts often have uh, become a little more calloused by the time each Sunday comes around. Uh, a little more forgetful of, of your goodness and your grace. So I thank you for blessing us with such wonderful songs this morning that reminded us of your goodness and your grace. We pray right now that you would soften our hearts even a little more. Open up our minds and our thoughts to uh, remember or to even learn for the first time how good you are and how much you love us and want us to draw near to you and call out to you. And you want us to spend time relishing your love together. So lead us and guide us, not only today, uh, but throughout our days to, to be focused on you and to be glorifying you with our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So how does it go, this first question, what, how does it go when someone uh, tells you what to do? John, move over. Yeah, exactly. So how does it go so badly? And oh, the other thing I wanted to say is as we have these dialogue, dialogue things, it, it's more helpful if you use more than one word. So like, like a real conversation, 
Uh, and sometimes one word is appropriate, but you feel free to answer in you know, full thoughts as well. So how does it go? Yeah, you flinch because it feels like an insult. That's a great way to put it. Okay, you ask, why are you trying to control me? We kicked out the people from America hundreds of years ago who wanted to tell us what to do, okay? <laughs> and we told the people that were here before us what to do. Um, question the reasoning, yeah. Why? Yeah, question whether... You know, it's like, Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a four-year-old son, and uh, he, you know, his good friend... Derek and he, they'll be playing together and I'll hear one of them be like, you're not my authority. <laughs> it's like, first of all, we talk to them too much for that to be part of the vocabulary yet. Um, but secondly, it's like, yeah, he's your friend and he was just asking you to go down the slide so that he could go. Like, it's, it's you know, that's, uh, he doesn't need to be your authority to say that. Um, yeah, and I've actually lately, I just as, so I'll open up a little bit too. Lately, I've actually been really seeing this rise up in my heart, like, it's, it's little things. I mean, it is the most minuscule, ridiculous things, but just anyone telling me what to do, I just get so, it's, it's so, such a hard heart in response to that. I mean, it, it's, you know, and sometimes it can even be, will you please, pretty please, you know, but I'm still just like, no, not just because you told me to, like, please open up to page 565. no. I, I was on page 563, and, um, and I just, I, I'm confessing that, and I've been kind of working through that with God a bit lately, but how do things go, not only when someone tells you what to do, how does it go when someone points out that you're wrong? It never happens, okay? What's that? It's painful, yeah. You get defensive. Or some people do, right? Yeah. Some people get defensive. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I've seen you. Yeah, you start comparing. Yeah. Who are you to say that that's not blue, right? Like, it doesn't matter what someone's pointing out. We're just, we compare immediately. And, um, and it's, yeah, who are you to say that? I know one of the things lately for me is we've been going through a, uh, trying to do a short sale on a house in Florida that we own, and uh, or that you know someone somewhere between us owning it and the bank owning it. Um, so two years, going on two years trying to do a short sale. Uh, we're on like the third buyer. Uh, it's been broken into. The air conditioning's been stolen, stolen everything. And so when the people from SunTrust Mortgage tell me what to do, wow, does that? It's like it's. Ex- I mean, it's exactly what I need to do to move the thing along. But it's just I'm offended at them. Therefore, they. They cannot tell me where to sign or what to fill out of paperwork or anything. And that's, uh, for me, one of the ways it's going, that's happened in my life. So let's do some kind of word association. Tell me what comes to mind when I mention the word grief. Tears? Sadness? What's that? Loss? Yeah. Anger? Remorse? Austin read ahead. What about evil? Dark. 
darkness, selfishness, pain. Somebody say pain. Pain. Is that what you said? Okay, I was just making sure that's what I heard. Okay. I don't know about you, but when I think of evil, pretty quickly what comes to mind is others, you know? It's like those people over there, those situations, or maybe like there, are, there is evil, you know, there's, there's ISIS and what they're doing to people around the world. They're, you think of the devil, right, Satan. Uh, what about repent or repentance? What comes to mind? Saving, turning, turning. Jesus, forgiveness, sorrow, attrition, contrition, sincerity. Yeah. Contrition is when you are contrite. Vince, what is contrition? Okay. Having a heart that is sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do any of you feel, what about feelings for you when you're called, when, when it's time to repent? <laughs> See, that's a different story, right? Like, what we thought, the word repentance is like beautiful, forgiveness, but it's time for you to repent. It's like, ah, mm, not today. What did I do wrong? What's that, you know, when, you're, when your boss or your pastor you know, calls you or leaves you a message or texts you. It's like, hey, we need to get together and talk about something, right? And then it's that feeling. <laughs> Emily's physically moving. In her, no. See, right, cringeworthy, right? Yeah. Well, today we want to talk about the fact that repentance is turning from false gods, and I'll explain what that means, but it's turning from false gods, so you're facing false gods, and repentance is turning from false gods who will ruin you toward Jesus, who will perfect you. So repentance is turning from false gods who will ruin you toward Jesus, who will perfect you. Or another way to put it is repentance is simply the act of turning toward the most beautiful thing. That will beautify you. So let's read a passage about the people of Nineveh repenting. If you did not know, we as a church have been going through the book of Jonah. And who has one of these Bibles here? Anybody got one of these? Just a couple of you? Anybody know what page we're on? CJ? 659 if you have one of these. So, but the book of Jonah is, uh, and we're in chapter 3 today. I'm going to read the entire chapter for us right now. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Is everybody familiar with the story of Jonah? The first time, what did he do? He ran the other way. God said, go where? To Nineveh. I have Jonah on my arm, by the way, coming out of a fish. And he bought a ticket to where? Not Nineveh, right? That's what the Jesus Storybook Bible says. He went down to the port and said, I'll have one ticket to not Nineveh the other way. And uh, a storm arose. Even the sailors cried out to all their gods. It didn't work. And they found Jonah sleeping in the bottom of the ship and said, what have you done? Cry out to your God. He 
confessed eventually. They threw him into the sea. He was swallowed by a great fish where he was for three days and three nights. He cried out to God, almost repented, kind of, and although he still ended up being angry at the Ninevites in the end, and that fish put him out on the shore, God, and then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Then we're in verse two now, arise, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. This is the most concise gospel sermon ever. Eight words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he went throughout the city calling this out. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And this is the second part of the chapter is where we're going to dig in more today. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So these are very clear to the original readers of this text, and probably to you today, but the, the, these are acts of mourning, acts of contrition, acts of there is something seriously, seriously wrong with the world, and I am going to by my actions and by my life right now, act out that something needs to change. Something is wrong, and I will display that with my very being. And the king issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So there's some grief, right? There, they, they fasted in order to repent. Even the animals could not eat. I mean, imagine that as a church, if we said, something is wrong, we need to repent, don't feed your dog until all of us have turned. That's extreme, Right? We've never been there. I mean, I love the book of Jonah, and part of the reason that it's just so fascinating and kind of funny is how much the animals come to play. You know, the great fish swallowing Jonah, and the, the animals have to fast, and the animals have to be covered in sackcloth, animals have to cry out to God, and then the very last phrase in the book of Jonah is that God saved Nineveh because there were 120,000 people and much cattle. I mean, God loves steak, right? And so he saved Nineveh. But he also had these, these animals, the king and the nobles. They said, no one is to put anything in their mouths, but everyone is to shout the praises of God from their mouths. 
Everyone is to call out to God because repentance is the act of calling out to God. Turning to Him and crying out to Him and surrendering our lives to Him. And this should point to uh, repentance is not the same as apologizing in order to get something over with. Biblical repentance is nothing like the worldly act of apologizing. Biblical repentance will require of us to fast and to pray and to plead with God and to ask the Spirit to reveal to us where we need to turn. And God loves it when we repent, and he loved it that they repented. In fact, in Matthew 12, Jesus uh, says to the uh, religious people, the unrepentant who think they have nothing to repent about, he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. He says about himself. Jesus and God, God remembers this moment of repentance by the people of Nineveh so clearly that Jesus talks about it again when he comes to this earth and says, those men are standing in heaven and they will stand in judgment over those who do not repent. So based on this, how does God want us to respond when we're told we're in the wrong? It's pretty clear, right? With contrition. That is just the great word now for today. He wants us to, to take that on, to, to stop, to pause, to fast, and to pray, and to say, God, where have I gone wrong, and how can I return to you again? In con- contrast to how we normally respond when anyone, let alone God, says that we're in the wrong. But why? Let me ask you this. Why do you think Jesus wants us to respond like the king and the people of Nineveh? Why is this a good thing? Because he wants to save us. Absolutely. What else would you say about this? Why is this a good thing? The evil of our own own hands is hurting us. Yes, it it is, absolutely. Yeah, others are affected by that, yeah. Our our life is going to be most meaningful and in line with how we were meant to live if we are, uh, if if we're forced to let go of like the idols that are important to us. Everybody hear that? Uh, my daughter this morning said, when I asked her this question, she said, when he died, he made us free to do that. So he wants us to use that freedom we have. He died so that we'd be free to turn back to him, free to repent. So then the question is, and I'm glad you asked it, how do we repent? So I want to I do a little bit of how-to this morning. How do we repent? What's a good way, a good kind of methodology? And this isn't everything and anything there is about repentance, but I am going to walk through a couple steps of kind of main bullet points of how we repent. So I want you to begin to think of a time recently, maybe a moment, maybe a month, maybe even something right now, a time that you uh, began to be convicted a little bit of a sin you committed. 
Think of a time that you have done something wrong to someone else, something wrong internally, something wrong against God. Maybe this weekend you committed some sexual sins. Maybe this weekend you went, and went out and, and got drunk and you're now being, beginning to be a little bit convicted and hungover at the same time. Maybe you have a distrust of God's will for your life right now. You know where he wants you to go. He know what, you know what steps he wants you to take next and you are resisting it rebelliously. Whatever it is. And I want you to think about that moment of of when you begin to see that, either through God or others, when, when that begins to be pointed out, as we've been talking about already this morning. When that happens, as we talked about, when, when you begin to realize, like, okay, someone or something is telling me that I was wrong, it's in those moments that there's that whisper, right? There's a, there's a whisper of justifying yourself. Those whispers of, you know, yeah, maybe, but the situation was, was pretty difficult, and so... You know, it's okay that you turn there because, you know, none of your friends are going through that. Or maybe it's just a, a flat-out argument about whether or not things are right and wrong, that those whispers in your, your head and your heart. Or maybe it's even just fear, whispers of you should be afraid of, of the consequences of this or you should be afraid to admit this, so you should just, you know, Put your head in the ground. Go, go drink a little more. Go play a little more video games and ignore this and get away from it because if you admit this wrong, you, you don't want to see what happens after that. And I want, you to say, I want you to know that those voices are from the devil. Those voices of self-justification, of argument against God and, and of fear of repentance are not good and they are of our enemy. And they're against what God wants for our lives. And that, though, is the moment. Those are the, those are the moments of decision. We can either decide to give in to those worldly or devilish voices, or we can, that's the moment when we can allow the Spirit to take over. We can allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us into repentance. And if we don't allow the Spirit to lead us in those moments, you know what we will see come out of our lives and, and be throughout our lives is destruction and not grace. Because again, repentance is turning from false gods who are and will continue to ruin you toward Jesus who waits with open arms to perfect you. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, uh, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he's praising the, them for the reports he's heard about them. And he says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, for them, it was probably more literally like they, made, they you know, found a log and they, they cut a little thing out of it and put it on a pedestal or in the middle of their city and they would bow down to that idol. But the Bible talks about idols of the heart as well. So this is equally relevant to us today. And an idol of the heart or a false god, when I say that, uh, I'm talking about anything and everything that in your life you fear or look up to more than God. Anything that you would sin in order to obtain or to please. When you make a decision 
to pursue something and, and on the, you know, to get that, you must sin or commit wrong or go against what God wants for you. That goal, that thing has become the idol in your life. So I want to talk about the how-to. How to turn from false gods who will ruin you. The first thing is to ask the Spirit if, in fact, you've sinned. Sim- simply to ask the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, or hopefully it's obvious, that if I'm talking about asking the Holy Spirit, that means that you have a relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying that this has to mean today that you already know how to talk to and listen to the Holy Spirit. Because I guarantee you that if you've never even communed with God in that way and believed that the Holy Spirit will answer you, if you begin to do that, you will grow in it day by day and your life will become better. Not easier, but better. So first, though, place your faith in Christ is kind of the prelude. Secondly, ask the Spirit if you've sinned. And what we need to believe about the gospel in order to take that first step is that you're not perfect. Right? You need to believe that you're not perfect in order to ask the Holy Spirit to show you your imperfections. Because Jesus only died for what kind of people? Sinners. Imperfect people, right? Luke 5.32, Jesus says that very thing. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And by that he means, really, you know, in other places, obviously, no one is righteous. So as long as you think you are and refuse to repent, then I didn't come for you. That's what Jesus is saying. So secondly, after you've asked the Spirit, if you've sinned and He begins to show you, He shows you where your sin is. And He may not have yet shown you the depths of what that means, but he, because, you know, as one person said, sin ha- the depths of sin has no end. You know, the, the depths of it, the bottom of sin is death. So you can never really fully get to the bottom necessarily, but you want to know. That's the second step is you want to ask Him, what's underneath that though? Like what's underneath that scab that I have in my arm? You know, why is that there? What's going on underneath this sin? A great illustration that uh, someone else taught to us at a training we went to once that Vince and I were at, uh, they talked about fin management. See, we're not talking about sin management, and this illustration about fin management, I think, is, is pretty vivid. And so imagine with me, if you will, that we are going to go surfing today, right? So we're going to go down to where? Where are we going to go if we're going surfing today? What? Okay, that place. And, uh, and we've, so we've, we've got our boards, assuming that uh, either we know how or someone's going with us that knows how to surf. We've got our wetsuits if it's too cold, right? We're ready to go in the water. And as we're, we park our cars and we're getting our boards down, we see some little triangles going back and forth in the water in the waves, right? Little triangles floating back and forth. And as we walk down the, the beach, we, we get a little closer. We see that those aren't triangles. They're, in fact, fins, right? And there are fins going back and forth in the water as we prepare to go out and surf. And as we get even closer and our toes get to the water's edge, we realize that those are great white shark fins. Now, who's going surfing with me at that moment? No one. That's amazing. But they're just fins, right? Are you afraid of fins? No. What are you afraid of? Sharks that connected to the fin, right? The shark that's under the water. Now, if then immediately those fins go underwater, will you then just rush into the water? 
No, but the fins aren't there anymore. You can't see them. We've managed the fins, right? No, the problem is the shark. We need to either kill or, you know, get away with the shark, right? And that's the same thing with sin. It's not about managing the surface issue. Like if I went out there and grabbed a hold of the fin, would you all then be confident? No, right? It's not enough to just hold on to a fin. It's the shark. And in all of our hearts, when we fin, there is a shark. When we sin, there is, there is a, it's the shark in our hearts, the, the worship of false gods in our hearts that is the real issue. And that's what needs to be eradicated, killed, put to death by the sword of the Spirit. And so that second step is to ask the Spirit, what is the shark beneath the fin? What is the unbelief under the sin that I've committed? And here we need to believe, the part of the gospel that you need to believe here is that Jesus did not die a general death for general sins. Jesus died a very real and specific death. Very specific nails went through his hands and feet in a specific place on a specific cross for specific sins. And so we are free to admit and to confess those real idolatries to him and not just leave it vague so that we never really experience healing. Does that make sense? You following along? Ask the Spirit if you've sinned. Ask Him what is the shark underneath the fin. Thirdly, ask the Spirit to either remind you if you've already heard or seen or to teach you for the first time maybe how much better God is than that false idol. Because we make decisions to pursue false idols that are very shiny and appealing, don't we? They are are wonderful things that, that maybe God has given us. For many, many, many parents, that false idol is what? Their kids. Children are what from the Lord? They're gifts. They're a blessing. But they are not God, right? Your spouse is not God. That hamburger is not God. That's an easy one, right? But we pursue wonderful and great things, and we need the Spirit to remind us or to teach us God is so much more beautiful and true than those idols, right? And that will always lead us to the cross because at the cross is the height of God's love for us on display. That is where He is most beautiful is in His redemptive death for our sins, his freeing death that gives us life. So we ask the Spirit to remind us or to teach us for the first time, and that's going to be in conjunction with others. We don't get to tell the Spirit how he's going to teach us. Oftentimes, it's going to be by sending us on a ship in a storm, having us thrown overboard so that we can get swallowed by a fish, experience the guts of a fish, be vomited onto dry land, and still have to go do what he told us to do in the first place, right? That's sometimes how he's going to show us that he's more beautiful than escaping a hard task. He's more beautiful than my leisure. So fourthly, so now you're at this place where you've seen the beauty you know, of your false God, you've been going after already, and the Spirit has shown you the beauty of the one true God, but you haven't necessarily changed your mind about which one you're going after. 
And that's, so that's step four. And that's kind of most literally what repentance means in the Greek. It's not repentance. That's an English word. But the word that's in the Greek from which the New Testament was written, it means to change your mind. You need to change your mind about which God you will pursue. And it, it kind of goes without saying, so we should say it, that you must change your mind about which God. You must change your course. You turn to Him and you begin to sing His praises. You decide you will no longer sing the praises of this false God. You will no longer make decisions to pursue this false God, but you will make a decision to pursue God, to call out to Him as the Ninevites did. Because He wants you as His own. Because he cares for you each and every day. Because he made you. Because he is more satisfying. And one of the things I love is that you get to experience the joy that heaven is filled with every time we repent. Luke 15, 7 says, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So every time you turn to God, an angel gets a slice of cake, I don't know, at the party in heaven, right? Like, but there is more joy in heaven over one time of repentance than of 99 days of you walking through it thinking you're pretty good. And fifthly, the fifth step is to enjoy his grace and bear some fruit. To be transformed, to be perfected is the final piece of repentance. It doesn't just end with your mind, but it works itself out in your hands and your feet and your life. In Matthew 3, 7 and 8, again, Jesus is talking to people who think they're pretty good, people who think Jesus is wrong. And he says, but when he saw the, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In Acts 26, 20, it's talking about how everywhere kind of the gospel has spread and, and why that's good. And it says, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So the, expect, the biblical expectation of repentance is that there will be deeds that are in line with your repentance, right? That it won't be every single day or every single time you, experience, you, you just say you're sorry, but there's no change in life. Now there's grace. I'm not saying, you know, you repent for a sin once and never commit it again. It's not how my life works. I know that's not often how it works, but there is an expectation that we will grow in grace as we repent and that we will perform deeds that are in keeping with repentance, that are display of the fact that we walk by faith, that, that God is the one in charge of our lives, that he is transforming our hearts and making us a display of his glory to this world. Let's spend just a couple minutes walking through this together. So I've been talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. So I'm just going to ask these questions for each step. And again, hopefully this is where you can share a little bit. So think about right now what kind of sinful things about your life either grieve you or should grieve you. What are the sins in your life? Think about it for a minute. 
Pray about it now. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you right now. Do you gossip? Are you prideful? Is it pornography? Is it having sex with someone who's not your spouse? Is it having what my friend called clothed sex with someone who's not your spouse? Jealousy? Bitterness? Any kind of addiction? Maybe even to your iPhone? To Hulu? To your Xbox? Not keeping your promises? Lying? Living and dressing in such a way that you are purposefully trying to tempt others? being a temptress. Rebelliousness against authority. Stubbornness. Being vengeful. Vanity. Laziness. Sinning in your anger. For me, a big part of of what grieves me most often is when I sin against my wife and kids by mistreating them and by ignoring them. And it really bothers me. That's one of my sins that I'm grieved by. Does anybody want to share out loud what kind of things grieve you about your life? What's that? Pride? Quick to anger? Vanity? Hmm. Fearing others? Hmm. Fear, yeah. Yeah, and the second part, let's, let's think now and, and reflect on what, what kinds of false belief, what kind of lies, what kind of false gods, what kind of unbelief are, is underneath that sin. Not trusting God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right? You're jumping ahead. It's good. That's where we're going. So, yeah, for me in those moments and those days when I neglect, and it truly is neglect, like sinful neglect, when I neglect my family, yeah, I'm believing the lie that, that my life is about me and that spending all my time and energy on myself will be more satisfying, is the lie that I'm believing, than listening to others, than doing the dishes and making the bed, than teaching my kids how to change the brakes on the car. But it never, ever is more satisfying to live for myself. Looking for satisfaction in my own leisure is never, ever more satisfying than finding all my satisfaction and following the king who serves. So if you began then to see that God is true and better than whatever lies or false gods you've been looking toward, how would that feel? So not even necessarily like how would that change your life yet, but just how would that feel if you began to see God as more beautiful than whatever that lie is? Whatever is kind of you've been pursuing as more beautiful. Excited. Yeah, your desire for just being with him would grow. Absolutely. Easier to give grace to others? That's good. What's that? Peaceful, yeah. I don't know about you, but there's, yeah, there's a real anxiety that disappears when I see like, oh, there is, there is one who's truly satisfying because it is such hard work and it is such anxious work to pursue satisfaction in things that keep disappointing. Peaceful, yeah. How else would it feel? How does it feel when you look to God as more beautiful? So this is, hopefully this isn't all theory, right? Hopefully we've been living, some, living out repentance. So just remember in those moments where you've been reminded by the Spirit of God's beauty, how does that feel? Yeah, like heartwarming, freedom, weight lifted, yeah. Wonderful. What's that? Hopeful, yeah. Gives you strength. Uninhibited. Yeah. Hopefully, what? See everything beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Life itself, you see the beauty all around you more, right? So how can you then, this is real practical, how could you begin in your life, what steps could you take, real actions, to make sure that you see him and praise God for those truths in his beauty more often? How can you make sure that those reminders are in your life more? To read the word more? How else? Just stop? Yeah? Get around people that will remind you? Absolutely. Be filled with the Spirit? 
What's that? Pray. Yeah. Yeah, take time to talk to and to listen to God, right? look back even over your own life and remember that he catches you every single time, right? that he, he lifts your spirit every time, that he is there for you in grace and love every time you turn back to him and remember those moments. Yeah, it's good. Making sure that we're spending relational time with God is a common theme here, right? Relational time with God, our Father who loves us dearly. Asking the Spirit to remind us of His love for us and thanking Him for all He's doing in and around us. So important, so key. Um, How would that, next question is, how would that change your life? What would actually change in your life if and when this has? How does this change your life? Okay. How so? Yeah, that's great. We'd be more available for others. Our time wouldn't be about, this is my time, but it would be, it's, it's about God and about serving and loving others. Absolutely. We'd be more compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. Be more compassionate, more sympathetic to others in the same struggles or in different struggles, any struggles, right? Yeah, that's awesome. Day to day becomes just more filled with meaning. And kind of imagine that in your mind's eye right now. Like if all of us, you know, our morning theme was we wake up and say, all right, God, what do I get to repent of today? <laughs> because what that's asking is, God, how are you going to make me more like Jesus and see your beauty more today? You want that every morning, right? Well, the road to get there is repentance. Right? You can't, 
see his beauty more if you don't turn away from the ugliness a little more. Yeah, that's a meaningful day. A meaningful day is a day that God wants to make you more like Jesus. That's exciting. That's a reason to get up in the morning, right? Yeah. Yeah, what can I do for you, God? Absolutely. You know, one of the things, again, my daughter said this morning, she said, there's some good quotes. Um, She said, I would be, I would just be okay with doing the best I can because I know that Jesus, he helped me do this. So it's good. She said, I'd be able to help others too, to encourage others, to bear with them in the struggles of repentance. You know, it's hard to repent. So I'd be able to encourage others. And definitely I'll be able to do things with a better attitude because he already did it perfectly. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. So that, some kind of complicated wording, but it's saying we get to see God for who he is. We get to, the glory of the Lord means we get to look at Jesus without a veil, as it were. We know the, the end of the story. We know that Jesus died and rose again, right? We know that he's alive today, right? Yes. He says, and when we do that, it says, we are being transformed into the same image. When we look at Jesus, we become like Jesus, That's good news. It says we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. A little bit at a time, right? God's transforming us one day at a time. A little bit. One degree of glory to another. He's transforming us into the image of Jesus. And then it says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is a work of the Spirit in our lives. That's why, you know, the the how-to was ask the Spirit, ask the Spirit, ask the Spirit. Follow the Holy Spirit. Let him teach you because, again, repentance is by the power and the grace of God turning toward the most beautiful thing, turning away from false gods who will ruin your life toward Jesus who will perfect you. And so now, in conclusion, now that you know how to repent today, you can, like Jonah, well, Hopefully not just like Jonah, hopefully a little more kindly, but you can, like Jonah, now lead others to see repentance as good news. We can go out into our city, whence we enjoy and appreciate turning from lies to the truth, we can then go and share that with others, as we've been talking about a little bit. Uh, you know, Vince was, sent me some, some of his thoughts about this. He said, this is kind of the, the title sermon of the series. Does anybody know the name of our Jonah series, by the way? God's mission, other, other than Vince. So we titled this God's mission, right? Good. Thank you, John. And this passage shows, Vince wrote, that not only did God prepare a storm and a fish for Jonah, but he also prepared those things for his mission. So God leads us to repentance, not just for our good, but for the good of God's mission, which is to redeem all things to himself. 
And this mission was impossible for Jonah. But with God, all things are? That's right. All things are possible. God had a plan that included saving Jonah and included transforming Jonah's heart, but also included transforming the hearts of every single person in the largest city in the world in that day. And much cattle. So it was a plan that was for Jonah's good and for Nineveh's good and for God's glory. So this is God's mission that we are on. He is at work redeeming your story. God is at work redeeming your story. And he wants to make you more like Jesus every single day. So I hope that from now on, when you wake up in the morning, you will begin to say, God, what do I get to repent of today? Because I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. So that you can send me out on your mission to love and to redeem people to yourself. Let's pray. And then we're going to remember Jesus' act of redemption on the cross through communion. After I pray, we have the bread here that represents the body of Christ. And I want you to think of, when you think of the bread and the body, think of in Jesus' body was the righteousness of God. Jesus, with his body, did not sin. He was perfect and righteous. And so as you eat that bread, you remember that as you place your faith in Christ, his righteousness clothes you, his righteousness fills you, his righteousness nourishes you. And so you get to remember that. You get to remember that all the sins that you've not repented of in your life, he gives you righteousness by faith for those things. And then as you drink or taste the moistness on your bread, because we dip it in the juice, uh, you remember that his blood washes over you and cleanses you of all that unrighteousness. So he gives you his righteousness through his death on the cross, and he cleanses you of your unrighteousness. And so share with one another where that's a struggle to believe when it comes to repentance. And share the gospel with one another. Get together in kind of huddles. If you're not part of one of those or you're intimidated by joining a circle, um, don't be. Uh, And if you're already in a circle and it looks like someone's wandering around and intimidated by joining a circle, invite them to join yours and to share the gospel with them. If you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, I want you to know this isn't just a religious ritual, uh, but, but please, if your faith isn't in Christ, refrain from this for now, but you're welcome to join a circle and listen in on how we participate as Christians in this act of what we call communion or remembrance.